Susan Felth, the Citizen Kane of podcasting. Modern man is confronted with so many movies. Which ones are films? And which ones are filth? At number 88. Wait, didn't we already do this film for episode two of this podcast? Episode two? No, nah, it was like, it was 11. Episode two. I'm going to put money on it num- being number 11. Okay. How much money do you want to bet? None. It's all numbers today. Uh, this is 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, a podcast looking at films and filth. I got that backwards. That's fine. Um, <laughs> So we can yeah. call it whatever we want. We can call so it anyway, whatever this, we want. This is, this is part two of our 2000. Oh, Matt, I was correct. It literally was episode two. Yeah, that's why I was trying to get him to bet me money. What Logan Trump was episode two? Okay. Literally episode, oh, correct. Oh, films and filth, you dingus. Oh, oh, the travesty. That's the travesty. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. My brain split. We don't, we don't acknowledge that what? we had another podcast before this. Oh, okay. Not that it's all on the same feed. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yes, it's Matt here. It's I'm Luke on. here. It's Mark made making wait. Luke wait and, and coming back because he he wants he he wants to force himself to watch movies and then come here and talk to us about them. For Mission Log the Orville podcast. Hello, Mike Richards. Hey, good to be here. I uh, I figure I'm going to watch some movies anyway, especially. When I get to do uh, get a good excuse to watch something on your list, then uh, and then talk about it. So, man, win win for me. Well, our, the running theme of this podcast is be glad you didn't choose to watch Once Upon a Time in America. But um... <laughs> <laughs> well, so okay, well, let's just get into it. Um, how many of you thought of this as a long movie and then looked at the runtime when you sat down to watch it and realized that it's no longer a long movie? <laughs> this is this is one of those cases where I almost didn't bother watching it again because I was a weird child in an elementary school. I probably watched this movie like twice a month on VHS taped off of the Superstation. Uh, so I was not watching in a widescreen, which is mm-hmm. kind of messed up. But hey, I was like eight years old. So, you know, who cares? Uh, and I've seen it a lot since. I've, I've watched it since um, we did the Luke and I did a podcast of it several years ago, you know? <clears throat> So uh, I hadn't watched it since then, and I made a real point of this week sitting down, watching it on the TV, turning off all the lights, and like watching a damn film. And um, because it was late at night, I guess it did still feel kind of long, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of long, but we'll get into why. Um, so and a half hours or so, if I remember right, it uh, yeah, it's a little longer than average, I guess. I mean, that, these days a lot of films are that long but the way films are paced is so different yeah it, it is long for a movie that has very little dialogue and a lot of scenes with zero or one sapient character mm-hmm. right but for me it is weird this is like probably the film I've watched the most this Ghostbusters and Star Trek 234 are probably the films I've seen the most so I, I don't know why I kept watching this as a kid and why I keep watching it as an adult. So I guess I, I like this movie. Um, is anyone that I've watched this too many times, Club? Or is it just me? No, because I can't oh. watch it 
that soon after having previously watched it. Okay. I watch it like once every four or five years. <laughs> well, I this is my first time that I sat down to watch the entirety of 2001 story. Um, mm. I had dropped out of college and I was sort of giving it one more try going back to do film class. And I was in a situation where um, I was about 21. I had a roommate situation kind of fall apart. Matt, you might remember some of this. And I basically had to get all my shit and leave this uh, apartment and was sleeping on the floor of people I was going to move into a new place with. So I was just really uh, just stressed out and kind of destroyed mentally. My relationship was falling apart. Um, and it was a thing where you had to pick a film to do a report on. And I picked 2001 and I watched it. I'd seen, you know, bits of it here and there, like on TV, but never sat down and tried to absorb the entire thing. And then after it was over, I just started kind of screaming because I was like, uh, how do I talk about this? I don't know what happened. What is going on? And I think I either just never turned in the report or turned it in way late. I don't remember what happened. Did you drop out of college? Is that what happened? I dropped out of college again. Yeah, that definitely happened. <laughs> but I don't I don't I don't know if I blame this movie for that. You should. That was, you should have. You should have gone straight for that. That's a much better story. <laughs> <laughs> I think the story is good enough already. I, mean, I could go into why the, the roommate situation imploded, and that would also be a good story, but I just uh, want to keep it short and stay on topic, possibly. Sure. Uh, Mike, where do you sit on, on this particular film as a, as a relative sci-fi guy? Well, you know, I mean, I, I love sort of the uh, the first... Um, I mean, I'll, I'll take away the, the the first twenty minutes of you know the the the, the dawn of man sequence, and the uh, you know everything sort of the um, you know the to Jupiter and beyond, um, but the hard sci-fi aspect of it, I love it. I mean, the ship looked you know feasible as as sort of a, a an extension of the space program. Mm. Um, the you know the AI was, I thought, you know, the HAL computer was. You know, I thought very, very well done, especially for 1968 and, and rings true today. Um, so I really, really like that part. I like the other part, too. But that sort of first clip of the and the last clip of the movie were, I mean, something I'd say other than hard sci fi. So it just kind of had a different feel about it. Um, but I think the movie is I mean, I think it's I think it's a masterpiece. It is. If somebody's watching it for the first time, and this was the first time I'd watched it for a while, it's 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 a it's an effort to get through the first thirty minutes, man. Uh, for me, anyway. I mean, I just feel like the pacing is just so. Come on, guys, let's do something. Oh, really? I'd <laughs> yeah. say the 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 all the Dawn of Man stuff I love. All the Jupiter mission I love. Just the dude going to the moon and chatting to coworkers bit. Cut all of that. Yeah, I had forgotten that was in the movie. Which is cut anything weird. before they get to the second monolith. <laughs> but I think we have to, like so. Matt gave me for Christmas last year um, the book of the making of this film, which I just read recently. And like Kubrick's vision with this film was to make the first good sci-fi. <laughs> good. <laughs> I I have a lot of theories about. Like what? I, I feel like I I know a lot more about Kubrick. I know a lot more about psychology than the last time I watched this, and mm. I feel like something about this. Like I uh, didn't think about this before. Kubrick was afraid to fly, mm. so 
Kubrick is afraid to fly. Not only was he afraid to fly, but part, the main reason he was afraid to fly was because he got a pilot's license and decided it was too easy for him to get a pilot's license. So <laughs> basically, so basically, uh, he has this weird distrust and then uh, makes a movie about someone flying places we've never been before. And I think his control freak nature manifests itself in Hal. And Hal kills everyone but one guy. So you, the one guy has to follow the set path mm. into oblivion, basically. He um, completes his mission. He's a real go-getter. Yeah, the, the, we don't know what he is because he doesn't talk after he kills Hal. We, we don't really know what, what he wants except for he, he flies in a straight line. Um, just, if you can't yeah, tell, was... I'm trying to come up with new takes and fresh takes about this movie because I know that this has been just dissected by everyone who's ever lived. Man, if he thinks it was easy to get a pilot's license, wait till he finds out about guns. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, maybe that's what Full Metal Jacket's about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so all the Pan Am stuff is basically a horror movie in Kubrick's mind. Okay. Uh, Mike, you, you had a, a point there? Oh, no, just the uh, the uh, the Pan Am. That shuttle was gorgeous. I would have... Uh... You know, prefer to be TWA, but uh, that's only because that was my company uh, that I flew for 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 a number of years. Uh, but that was that was just a beautiful shuttle that uh, that that dropped him off at the beginning. Um, you mentioned we don't know what Dave was thinking after he, you know, unplugged Hal. Um, was he along for the ride? Was he steering? Was he just caught up in this kind of you know wormhole like hyperspace or whatever it was? I I don't know. I was just kind of like, you know, very trippy and just kind of watching, watching the colors change, thinking that, all right, they made it to Jupiter. Um, now it's time to take this guy into the fold and show him where we're from, I guess. Well, yeah, with, um, you've talked about like Dave not really having a character. I think if I was going to come at this film to criticize it for a film about humanity, it lacks any. <laughs> well, except for how? Like, the most relate. I was going to say, the most relatable <laughs> yeah. characters in this film are a monkey and a computer. <laughs> that like, sounds like your kind of movie, Luke. Oh, it yeah. is. I loved it. Oh, well. <laughs> I love yeah. this film. I really like this film. But it is weird how it, like, all of its human characters are so flat. Like the guy, like they try and give you like, oh, here's a guy phoning his daughter. Like, am I right remembering that Stanley Kubrick's daughter? You are correct. So. That's Vivian yeah. Kubrick. Yeah. Um, so, you know, not the best child actor we've ever seen, but she does <laughs> come across awkward, like an awkward child on a telephone call. So I guess that works. It's It feels so obvious to me that the video calls were, you know, staged. And mm. it took me a second to be like, wait, this is this isn't real they're they yeah. didn't have video now we just take it for granted and just yeah, yeah, yeah. does things question, like glitch out question for the group speaking of the phone call with the daughter the video call with the daughter what is a bush baby I is, is it like, like a little that. like lima type thing i don't know i wrote it down. i don't I like, know f is a bush baby and why would this uh, man yeah oh yeah, yeah yeah i'm right it looks like a little sugar glider it's it's like a, they are kind of cute but also kind of gross I thought it was something racist, so I'm glad it's one. It's not that. No, no, it's a little animal from Africa. Okay, good. Stanley Kubrick's like uncancelled. 
It looks like something you would catch Ooh. in Monster Hunter World. Oh yeah, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> okay, I want. So one you now. you want a bush baby? Okay. Yes. Well, we know what you can request on the video call next time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a bush uh, baby, a monkey. I they will, are primates. I will shoehorn in. I guess the summary now, since I wrote it five minutes before we started this Zoom. <laughs> so you're gonna say it. That's right. That's the right. dawn of man. A group of apes encounter a strange black monolith. Once one of them makes contact, they gain tool and weapon-making skills and beat the tar out of a neighboring ape tribe. Jump cut a few million years. Dr. Haywood Floyd is en route to the moon. A black monolith has been found under the moon's surface. Dr. Floyd takes a team to check it out when the monolith beams a signal towards Jupiter. Jupiter mission. Dave Bowman and Frank Poole are the awake members of a mission to Jupiter. Their other three crewmates are in suspended animation. Their HAL computer glitches out and murders everyone but Bowman. Jupiter and beyond. With nothing much else to do, Bowman takes a pod out to explore the Jupiter monolith. He tumbles through some kind of stargate and ends up in a strange alien Victorian room. He ages and dies there, only to encounter the monolith one last time. Bowman is then reborn as a space baby, I think. Mm. Okay, I tried to keep that nice and uh, trim and trim and yeah. clim. I mean, it, it would be genuinely difficult to make a super long summary of this, I think. I could add in details like, you know, like um, Frank Poole floats, floats through the blackness of space. <laughs> After three minutes, uh, he makes it to a communications array. He opens the array. I could do it like that. <laughs> but you know what? You guys I mean, know that Frank Poole... did the novel for us. So. <laughs> you guys know Frank Poole is still alive, right? You mean the actor? After this movie. No, the Frank oh, Poole oh, oh, the character. is in cryostasis, yeah. and they thaw him out in 3001, and he meets uh, Halman, which is Dave and Hal merged together. Um, I won't... There might I, be a I reason always, I haven't read these books. <laughs> I, was, I love to bring these things up because uh, they dumb. Anyway, I don't know. I haven't read them, but I just Probably the summaries of them are could dumb. Could be fun when you read them. I mean, it's like yeah, how you I was just... like, I read those books in junior high school and I did really like them. I deliberately didn't try and go back to them because I wanted to just watch this film as a film. I think yeah. last time me and Matt did a podcast on this, I banged on about the books quite a lot. Yeah, I'd, I've only read the summaries and laughed at them, and it sounds kind of like that uh, Arthur C. Clarke was trying desperately to keep characters from the films alive through the books. Like uh, Roy Scheider's character from two, 2010 is still alive, and he's 100 years old in 2061. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, again, I, I can't totally judge a book I haven't actually read. But, Isn't Roy you know, Scheider, Hellman. Dr. Haywood Floyd in the second yes. one? He just played the recast. Yeah, okay. Because I think the first guy had like um, retired or something. Yep. Uh, uh, they needed a bigger boat actor. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what important question is? Uh, what What do you want from this movie in toy form? Just the, uh, the, the I would tunnel. Not, I want a monolith. <laughs> just just a black black cuboid that stands up. I love the monolith. I I was thinking about how if they made this movie, there was sort of an original pitch to make the monolith like a screen that showed apes how mm. to make tools. And then I think Arthur C. Clarke vetoed that. But 
if they made this now, there's no question the monolith would be like a spiky thing that looked like shit that was made of CGI. And it's just so nice that it's an elegant black rectangle. We all like, we all design. have monoliths now. I think they oh, also yeah. did a um they tried shooting with a transparent monolith and then changed their mind. Just holding up the instruction manual is black. Yeah, you, you know, you know, you're right about that. I mean, I think if this was done today, it would be some sort of like I'm just kind of you know imagining like like a venom like symbiote that just sort of mm-hmm. you know like like moved with the sound and kind of reacted you know in, in in the same way that kind of venom did to that eerie music that was being played in the beginning. I think it would take something away from the elegant simplicity that that is the monolith. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the good version of the modern. Uh, 2001 design would be Annihilation. Like they did cool things with CGI in that movie. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were trying to do a different thing, obviously. But still. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, the the toy I want is one of the Discovery pods, right? But I want like yeah, a that's switch cool. in the, I want I want a Buzz Lightyear switch in the back. So when you do the switch, the arms go out and come in. That's what I want. Nice. So, so like proving a, that our phones are always listening. I I since I was telling people I was you know, going to re- record with, with y'all. I was looking forward to watching the movie and doing this. 2001, A Space Odyssey, Facebook groups started to show up on my on my feed the other day. And mm. I, I read that, I guess, Kubrick destroyed the model of the Discovery following the production of this film because he didn't want it to get used or, or stolen uh, and get used in crappy sci-fi. That's so fair. I didn't know if yeah, that, yeah. that would ha- that would happen. We know we've done yeah. enough sci-fi podcasts that you know we're doing space nineteen ninety nine. It's like oh, this is from Forbidden Planet or something. You know, it's just that's well, a Twilight Zone. But they they basically rebuilt yeah. Discovery for space nineteen ninety nine. It's black and scary now. But uh, yeah, I was like, is that the same model? But I guess clearly not. If it was just yeah, and that sh- the the shuttle, the moon shuttle was so proto Eagle Man with the uh, with those kind of like I think it had six padded legs instead of you know kind of four and the the two you know open windows with the the blacked out area around them that uh, um, you know the thing that uh, uh, Haywood uh, Floyd took to the dark side of the moon um, sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, they were eating sandwiches. They had ham and turkey. They were they were a little, you know. I kind of like the real life aspect of that, but it was like, yeah, this is an awful long time to watch guys eat sandwiches. <laughs> I think because there was a period of time where this film was envisioned as like a, a docudrama about the future, and I think a lot of those early scenes are just like, here's what life will be like in the year two thousand one when you live in space, and a lot yeah, of that sort of. Yeah, around. I like that too. The thing that aged worse was the people eating dinner because it just didn't, you know, it didn't feel. Uh, was oh, it Russians? Sucking, it just did. Yeah, it just felt out of like boxes. You're not tonight. No new two for you. It just felt like 1969 with some with some packets. But um, <laughs> I I do really think that it was a deliberate choice to make this movie slow because you're in space and you move mm. slower in space because there's less gravity. It makes perfect sense maybe might frustrate some modern viewers. Well, you move because... faster in space. Just relative to everything else, you're very slow. Yeah, and also, I mean, we it's sort of like we get it. They're in space. Space is really big. Yeah. Yeah, space but again, 
we get it there in space because we've had the subsequent 60 years of films set in space exactly <laughs> and i and i can't say that this is somehow lesser than star wars because everybody's always running in star wars I, yeah. this is lesser than star wars <laughs> i guess some people does. yeah yeah i think a lot of people to be honest i think it's easier for a mod like a casual viewer to just go back and enjoy star wars whereas i think you have to sort of you have to put yourself in a deliberate mindset to enjoy this one think about the first I, 20 minutes of star wars though it goes pretty slowly i don't think star wars would exist with as it is without this because, oh absolutely absolutely not yeah because because mostly the soundtrack like isn't wasn't it something like kubrick made the call to change it to the the big heavy-handed classical music when that wasn't the original plan and i, I think it'd be like you can buy on cd like i don't know why i'm saying it that way but because i buy huh. cd still but there's an alex oh. north complete alex north soundtrack for this movie that was not used what's that like i haven't listened to it i haven't listened to it okay. i assume it's so more like electronic i i, I heard that, that sense. The, the music that was used was you know how there's um uh the term is i think you know placeholder music that mm -hmm. you know when, when they're kind of assembling the editing and stuff they'll they'll you know basically telling the composer like i want this kind of music here or that kind of music there and i think this has been cited as a, an example of uh you know the director just falling in love so much with the the choice of placeholder music that they just ended up going with that i mean that's it you know if john williams hadn't taken that baton and run with it i mean i can't say that that wouldn't have happened either way but that's what feels like to me i'm fully convinced that without john williams star wars would not have been as successful mm. um because it's it's a bold choice like all that stuff just bombastic classical music in space it did just wasn't the, a thing did you guys see the family guy where uh uh i think it was the one where they covered episode four and uh chris as luke skywalker was like uncle owen and Baru. John Williams. Oh no! Now we got to do this with Danny Elfman. She's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I hope Danny Elfman shows up. Danny, like, uh, at least now. Has, has any of you guys seen like recent shots of Danny Elfman, like photos? I have a theory. Have you seen recent pictures of Bridget Fonda? No. Is Danny Elfman and Bridget Fonda the same person? They're, they've been married for like 30 years. But okay. uh, Danny Elfman is now super jacked and tattooed, but Bridget Fonda has gained a bunch of weight. So I think that Danny Elfman has been stealing Bridget Fonda's life force. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That's my uh, theory. I'll steal that because my image of him is ripped on stage with like red hair, uh, you know, like mm -hmm. making some insane face. So yeah. And then he do, go he look doesn't... up Bridget Fonda. I mean, Hopefully Bridget Fonda's doing okay and he's and nothing absolutely hopefully she's just living her best life and doing whatever she wants. But there's no actual you know. energy vampirism going on. Maybe. You hope. I mean, that's not allegedly. Yeah. It's probably not real, but I hope it isn't. Anyway. <laughs> but it is my theory. Okay. Mm. I'll I think we just backed into a call to say we I have no idea about? how to get out of it. <laughs> what are we Music. talking about? music oh my god yeah um matt i want i want to field this question to you how did you feel about the gone girl soundtrack because i know you just slammed a bunch of fincher movies real hard and fast i like i like the resident ross scores pretty well 
um, that's, overall. But do, don't you think it's kind of a really interesting choice that it's kind of a drama that's a suburban drama and all the music is like beep boop. It's almost like that would be in the space movie. It's I, almost like the opposite. Well, I think, I mean, it's, it's worked several times. It's, you know, all the, you got lots of Finchers that do that with, uh, I didn't watch the social network because I hate Mark Zuckerberg too much. Okay. That does it. Um, the, the killer kind of does it. So it's kind of like the Fincher <laughs> thing now. Uh, would it work in a space movie? Sure. I would say that, no, I mean, even better. I was just saying that's the opposite. Sorry. Okay. Uh, it, uh, I, mentioned i've been watching chernobyl where it has a soundtrack that kind of like doubles down on that kind of thing it's a icelandic composer or something and uh it's like it does it even of course that makes sense because there's radiation there but so maybe it's a better fit is mm, so it's cold right is this music all the perfect fit in 2001 i guess i should ask um before to, you to answer, me it though, is it is Sorry, i think guys. uh the um so everyone obviously always brings up the the big like sweeping music for space or the ba with the hammer for me it's the it's the music with the monolith mm-hmm. matt you know what that's you know what that song's called yeah like it's, that. it's yeah. it's funny i was watching with my daughter today and she was like it was that you know that monolith music she's like i really like the music in this this is this is cool um and you know when the the astronauts went down to to look at the excavation of the monolith and it was just like creepy music and i'm like i wouldn't touch that thing like especially if they can hear that music in their helmets uh <laughs> and then they could hear that other sound in their helmets so maybe they didn't hear the they didn't have the soundtrack playing there but yeah i think it was mm-hmm. obvious from the music i wouldn't touch that thing i don't know what you guys do that stay away if it was like di- what is it didactic music when the music diegetic. is actually happening diegetic yeah, it's diegetic, and that music is just always coming out of the monolith. All the time. What would didactic music be? <laughs> music that explains itself to you? Yeah, probably. Thank you for explaining that. Um, this is dramatic music. Something and, dramatic is happening on the screen. And Didn't pedantic Deadpool music. That? Pedantic music. It was when somebody's ex- when the music is explaining what didactic music is. <laughs> uh, well, the music to me is perfect because it. It is bold as hell. It is very gutsy, and I cannot imagine a lot of directors having guts to do this. I saw him asleep while playing the Blue Danube. There are (laughs) huge sections of the film where it basically is just music and visuals. Like it's basically a music video for classical music. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is a rarefied charm in life, by the way. I just have to share that sometimes, you know. I have these like four or five hour orchestra rehearsals on a Sunday, especially if it's cold outside and hot in, you get sleepy and there's, there's a certain um, pleasure in life falling asleep while playing a symphony. Oh. <laughs> it's the cello. You could just like uh, kind of knock out on it, you know? Wow. <laughs> so I've fallen asleep while playing symphonies before, not in concert Damn. yet, but uh... <laughs> See, as some of the listeners might know, I was violin. So you're, you ain't falling asleep doing that. It hurts. You're, you're hurting the entire time. <laughs> I yeah, thought yeah. you were about to say I was violent. <laughs> I was violent. No. I was a violent man. The listeners know I was violent. So I never <laughs> sleep no, I never because don't. of the things I've done. <laughs> I don't sleep at all. But Especially you, not while I'm playing a symphony. But uh, yeah, if you want to know the nap instrument in an in orchestra, it's, it is the cello. Maybe a string bass, although you'd be standing up kind of, so it'd be harder. To yeah, you'd nap. be standing up completely. Yeah, so if you, you sleep you standing up, you that. do that. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was watching. I was watching an orchestra play the other night at a Christmas party. It was a. It was like a sixty-piece orchestra, and it was just kind of like watching the different sections. And I was really kind of taken back by how much downtime there is by certain players. And then they go, you know, they make like, you know, one or two chords and then that's it for several minutes. Yeah, there's a few symphonies out there where like the trombones play like four notes in like the entire hour. <laughs> so uh, when I hope the notes are. Yeah, <laughs> they usually better be on. pretty busy. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Especially if you're like a, a like a trombonist or um, you know something like a bass clarinet or something, you might not mm -hmm. be playing that much. Do you uh, do you think that Pan Am uh, shuttle? You think that was product placement? You think that was something that uh, like Pan I Am paid? I would assume. I don't think that Kubrick was super opposed to to a brand or anything like that. Okay. He wasn't one of those guys. Would it ruin this movie if it said SpaceX on it? Yes. <laughs> uh, be well, well, I mean, did actually, <laughs> actually yeah, get yeah. into it like the whole the whole Hal section, right? The problem is caused oh, yeah. because some tech company has given them some computer that they insist can do everything for them and has no issues, and then everything goes wrong. That's what would happen on a Tesla spaceship if it was smart and enough. They would just yeah, recall all of them, and it would be fine. <laughs> recall it yeah, from the, Jupiter. The, um, <laughs> um the, i was putting in my notes that it's kind of refreshing that hal was just doing all that stuff for the mission and not to make money i think alien was sort of the demarcation where everything after that was the evil computer is doing it for money yeah mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> it's just and i mean don't get me wrong i love the evil robot from alien and i think he's just amazing like he tried to choke her the porno mag that was insane uh, but <laughs> and the milk comes out of him. I don't know. You gotta love it. But um, Ian Holm. Do Do you have a favorite um, evil computer? Mm -hmm. This could be your favorite evil computer if you want. But you know, we got Landrew. Pretty Landrew's good one. A good one. Maybe Landrew is my favorite. Mostly because of his name. What was the Jeffrey Combs one from Lower Decks? Uh, it was called Ag like Agamus. Yeah, so it was called great. something yeah. evil. Yeah. <laughs> or no, Peanut Hamper. Well, that's the, the yeah, that was the other voice one. one. Yeah, they yeah. I mean, I'm gonna going with Peanut Hamper. Well, so I was thinking along the same lines when uh, when Gary Lockwood was playing chess with uh, I'm sorry, Frank Poole uh, was playing chess uh, with Hal. I was like, Kirk would have so won that game of test chess, and then you just <laughs> wouldn't have had to unplug anything. You could have just like talked Hal to death. Apparently, the actual chess computer they had was bad at chess because, you know, it was 1968. Uh, Kubrick played it a bunch of times, and uh, he called it a... A what? Damn it. He Damn it, it notes. He called it, called a, it a bumbling piss wit. Okay. <laughs> bumbling piss wit. Nice. Because it looked a it whole lot like up. the chess program. I might have played a bit on an Atari 800 XL. It didn't look like they uh, mm -hmm. really moved that ball forward much in the 15 years after. I'd, I'm sure that it was a much bigger and more yeah, I'm sure that they had a computer that filled a room and that, you had an Atari yeah, yeah. that barely filled a shoebox. So. Yeah, yeah, as far as <laughs> yeah. size. I mean, I, I'm just talking about like, I was like, that looks like the program I was playing in the 80s. A little bit, because chess was I mean, boring. at the end of the day, chess play, looks like chess, right? I wanted to play <laughs> like space Raiders or something. 
Yeah, I mean, Stanley Kubrick probably wouldn't even bother insulting your Atari. No, no, he's, yeah. Did you guys <laughs> like, play 2001 the Atari game? No. Was there one? No. <laughs> <laughs> we just, hey, like, assumed that there might have been, it might have been like, an Activision you know? knockoff or something. Yeah, come to think of it, this game this game has never been movie-fied. Sorry, other way, this movie's never been gamified, as far as I know. I, I guess it wouldn't be a very fun game. I mean, the end is just you sit there staring at your screen. So, <laughs> so I, do, somebody do, can do, make a good uh, narrative thing of this. It it could do, be great, but you'd know what happens. Yeah. So uh, maybe uh, not. The um the game of this <laughs> plays like Lemmings, and yeah. you just place you place monoliths <laughs> that teach the human right. race the things you want them to know. And, and okay. Say, yeah. Once once you get to Jupiter for the last like six levels you're just like along for the ride just watching the yeah. pretty colors zip by and actually uh, i did have a game like know. that on my ipad but that's that's casual gaming so yeah but it wasn't a 2001 game i like well, yeah you just the level is you just have to walk down the ramp you know i i looked up a video site. game of 2001 and it says the connection between fez and 2001 a space odyssey and i'm not even going to start reading that okay <laughs> anyway fez i've heard that name before in some oh, you have from the seventies show. No, I was things. I was thinking Steely Dan. I had a I had a different uh, retro reference in my mind. <laughs> hey, do you think like there was some sort of like three laws rivalry between Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke? Because like Asimov has had Hal been programmed with the three laws of robotics, like a lot of this wouldn't have happened in this movie. Because first of all, he wouldn't have harmed any humans or through an action allowed a human to come to harm in the um, mid 60s i think I those wonder... guys were friends and i think maybe he was just trying to do his own thing i'm not yeah. i'm just going off the top of my head with that um the interesting thing is that when i first the first few times i watched this i really thought that hal was under the influence of a monolith somehow mm. i guess just because the monolith was so played so heavily in the movie but i kind of dove in and tried to look up theories and it seems like that most people think that it's I think they explain he, it in 2010 they, like, so, he's programmed not to lie yeah. but then he's told to lie so right. then the yeah. only way he can actually so that, be good is to kill everyone yeah that that probably messed him up so because because I think mm -hmm. what happened was I was thinking, wow, how's kind of a conspiracy theorist? Because like this is just weird because stuff's been going on on the moon and now they're sending us and things are weird, right? And Dave and and yeah. uh, and uh, Frank are just like, ah, you know, we're just going to Jupiter. Like, ah, I'm not thinking anything's weird. But Hal's like, no, things things are weird. But then you find out later that Hal knew stuff. He knew the whole right? time. Yeah. So he was probably just kind of like, you know, that that little like just sort of you know you know feeling each other out. Like, hey, I've heard some weird things. Have you heard any weird things? Just a Oh no! Yeah, out, me neither. Feel out, feel out the rest <laughs> of the crew like that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, me neither. Um, then the other thing I was wondering is, if, you know, did Hal not get a little bit uh, of a bloated ego, like you know, being such a, a media darling and and talking to the people on the news and doing that interview and being told that he's the most important, <laughs> you know, most important entity on the ship? Uh, and he's like, yeah, I don't need these guys. I can uh, take everybody out, take them all out. Yeah, as someone who is a gifted kid, I totally understand that. <laughs> I, it took me it took me until i was about you know 45 to stop expecting that i was the smartest person in every room everywhere I, i'm still like if i can't do something instantly i don't like doing it yeah <laughs> yeah 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 uh, i'm trying to get better about it there's a problem 
Um, if if the media kept telling me that I was the smartest computer in the world, then I would go to Jupiter, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I do yeah, feel Jupiter. like I watch how short circuit in real time because he has that like weird hiccup at the end of the chess game when he's getting the report about the uh communication glitch he's just a book mm. which i yeah. think I, yeah i think the book luke arena explains like some weird tape effect they did to get that to happen yeah he wasn't but, saying um, working right he was saying just a just a moment you said just a moment just a moment yeah just yeah moment. so it seemed like he was glitching out right then and there i, I mean yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe that's too you know like pedestrian or whatever but um <laughs> no so I mean, that was was, was was the malfunction with the A thirty five? Was that a trap? Was that was that to get them out of there to to uh, cut off? I don't know because he doesn't I'm not get sure. psychotic till he reads their lips. It seems mm. up to that yeah. point, he it seems how does think it has a problem. You know, maybe he oh, well, he sends them out again. Maybe he's he's oh. so smart that he has predicted the entire sequence of events of the film. And in 72 hours, there would be a malfunction because he would be dead. <laughs> yeah, the, that, he realizes the only way he can get um, he can get Dave to fly. The only way the mission the... can be completed is if he's not there. Yeah, yeah. If he if he tricks him into killing him, and then they're on course, and he can't veer away. Yeah, and then and that's the master plan. Well, I mean, he's that's so ahead smart. of the game. He can show. He can show frank and dave advertisements of things they don't even know they're going to need for like two days later and am advertisement <laughs> yeah that's good. That's good. Um, and, uh, did, did anybody yeah. see ad astra no actually no. i wasn't i didn't really like it but there was a really cool sequence where he basically goes to the moon and the moon has just mcdonald's and all kinds of just every kind of just looks like a big futuristic garbage suburb that's everyone's mm -hmm. review of Ad Astra that I've heard. I didn't really like the movie, but it had this one really cool thing, and it's always something yep. different. So uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. add up yep. all the cool things together. You know, there are movies that just don't don't add up to the sum of their parts. Um, speaking mm -hmm. of fast food, I thought of the restaurant. There was a Howard Johnson's on that uh, that space station. I forget it was the moon base or the or that intermediary space station, but I noticed a uh, a Howard Johnson's restaurant. Man, did uh, they ever predict that wrong? The Cooper shows us product placement poorly. Joe's when I was a kid, yeah. Me too. Um, I went to. Didn't we go there in Japan, Matt? Wasn't no, we went to one Denny's. Probably at Denny's. Uh, which Denny's, Denny's? Actually, Denny's is not very good in Japan. I oh, like man. Denny's in Japan. It's just different food entirely than what you expect. That might be it. Yeah. I like the little beef stew. That's good. I also haven't been to Japanese Denny's for more than ten years, so I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's you know. Is it? Fantastic. Is it just called Denny's? Yeah, yeah. Denny's okay. just has different just food. Yeah. Okay. Denny's, <laughs> just like uh, we have so many Seven Elevens, but you can't get a Slurpee. Yeah. Well, Probably you know, you can also. I mean, anyway, that one time I walked to the Seven Eleven from your from your place, and then I got the best Chinese food I've ever had, which was behind a counter at Seven Eleven. The guy microwaved it for me, so yeah. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Yeah, you you can eat decently out of a out of your convenience stores here. It's great. Yep. It's the future. It's the future 2001 predicted in 2023. <laughs> I mean, I think you probably had Howard Johnson's in Japan after most of them were gone here. It looks like the last one Howard. closed last year. That's just, which is weird. Do we have in America have or in Japan? in Japan? In America. Huh? I don't even know what Howard Johnson is, but I'm imagining it's just like a family restaurant. Right. It's basically a, a hotel chain with a restaurant chain 
integrated and the restaurant is as famous as the hotel or maybe more fa- i think some of the restaurants don't have hotels i see it's hard to explain yeah because yeah, <laughs> yeah you want to stay there as a kid because in the 80s or before because you're like oh my god it's a motel motel and a restaurant mm-hmm. all together but your parents never want to stay there probably because the food's bad mm. yeah yeah it's sort of like meatloaf type food you know <laughs> things like that but it's so nice and oh, astronaut food yeah, astronaut food. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I was making my food notes, and I was like, the only food that is complained about are the sandwiches, but that's the best looking food in the. That's the only thing that looks like food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and well so, predicted uh, things, though. Um, my iPad does hang at that angle on my breakfast table most days, so that that was accurate. Instead of having you know, straight and flush, it's at a little angle. And uh, the, which, as a kid, I was like, "Why was the computer built that way?" Because I didn't know what a tablet was yet, and I thought that was what, that, the, the actual table. But now it, it's weird. That that aged well. The product placement didn't, but that aged well. Hmm. So yeah, it did. Well, and the video getting, cools. So getting back to Hal, um, hmm. do you guys think that? Um, that Hal is scarier, would be scarier if he was angrier? Or do you think it's scarier that he's kind of slow and polite? Because I feel like it's the latter, personally. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. He The reason he works so well is because he is, he's not, like, he doesn't hate anyone or he's not angry with anyone. He's just very calmly and quietly killing people. He's Yeah, he's cold, he's calculating, he's, he's mission first. Which is, yeah. you know, friendly and polite. These, these, these pesky humans um, getting, getting in the way. I just, I was sort of, you know, having watched this whole movie, you know, for the first time in a while, and in one sitting, I was, I was kind of wondering how much of a, fa- I mean, other than you know, all but one of the crew got killed. Like, how much of a factor was Hal really in this? Like, let's say Hal just operated flawlessly. You know, apparently, you know, they would have made it to Jupiter. They would have gone through the space warp or, or subspace or whatever they ended up doing to get transported to this this other place. Um, age repeatedly. And then there would have, might have been six or seven giant baby bubbles that came back sort of as the, the, the first well, or maybe from there. Maybe just one would have gone through, and the others would have been there to record it. Yeah, um, but but I don't think Maybe. Hal really stopped that that cycle of okay, we we and I'm just you know going with probably one of many many theories on the movie is that somebody put that obelisk there so that when mankind developed to the point that they found it, that then they could follow the signal that would then put them in touch with this alien race. And then they mm. would sort of come back in a recognizable form to to make contact, I guess. Um, you know, would that have happened? I think that would have happened even if Hal didn't malfunction. Would they have taken the whole right. ship into the Stargate? Though? Because, you know, Dave could have. Could he have taken the Discovery into the Stargate? Because he takes the pod. I, I don't know. It seemed pretty flexible, but I guess it was inside of a room. Um, here's my pitch. For, here's my pitch for the know-how version of this movie. Everyone goes into the Stargate, they all turn into old men, and then all the old men have a fight with the bones from the apes in the beginning. And then the last <laughs> old man who's alive becomes a baby. 
<laughs> now it is I who have become baby man. <laughs> yeah, it's like the end of Highlander. He screams, and then all the baby, all the old men, like turn into electricity and flow into him, and he becomes baby. All the old men have an orgy. <laughs> yeah, and one of them gives birth to the giant space. <laughs> Hell yeah! You know that could be some good full circle stuff right there because I named the ape at the beginning of the movie Bone Wielder. So if all the guys had an orgy at the end of the movie, then the winners <laughs> they had the same nickname. Well, also, like too, Bone Wielder. Before Arthur C. Clarke convinced him to go with this story, the story. Um, Kubrick wanted to make for his great science fiction film was an adaptation of some BBC radio drama about a space virus that makes everyone go sex crazy. Wow. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. I he wanted, like a, he wanted to make it. a titillating sexy movie instead of making the most sexless movie. <laughs> <laughs> he would have made 2001 a space travesty way early. He would yeah, have made think... Barbarella. I think they were going for some beefcake with uh, Gary Lockwood running running around the the loop, and then uh, kind of hanging out, listening to his parents sing "Happy Birthday" to him, wearing nothing but short shorts, which was and, and an Cyclops creative choice. <laughs> In my modern brain, I was just like, "Wow, he sprung for the rights to Happy Birthday." How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I believe they are actually like uh, free and loose now. Yeah, they are now. I they may have been back then. I'm not really sure. They think there was a period where it cost money, and that was when you got generic birthday songs and everything, which are fun themselves. You I, know, I like... there was a pretty good predictor. We're talking about the product placement right now. There's just a really good predictor that Pan Am probably wasn't going to make it, and that was that they were flying that shuttle all the way up to that station. And only had one passenger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, to yeah. to be fair, they had put the orange cones around the moon by that point. <laughs> <Good point. laughs> so, at least uh, space. <laughs> so, Mike, could you see yourself flying a spaceship like this? You know, I I I, I, I will share this. Um, back in the late seventies, kind of like right before the first space shuttle missions, um, NASA went to the major airlines in the United States and they actually went to the pilots unions and said, send us four pilots, not the ace of the base, not the dumbest guys you have, but just send us like four regular pilots. And they, so they, they ended up with probably 20 to 30 pilots in this study. And they ended up running them through uh, training and simulation to fly and land the space shuttle. And because the, the hope was that at one point, at some point, NASA could hand off the shuttle and make it a, com a commercial venture, that it would be, you know, commercially viable at that point. And the results of that study was, yeah, you know, an airline pilot, you know, your average airline pilot with the right training um, could do this. Nice. So, I, yeah, I don't know if that means me or not, um, but, you know, the right guy, you know, the right crews with the with the right training would be able to do it. So I thought that was I'm super interesting. Lunar That's lander awesome. would probably I mean, I... require a helicopter pilot, though. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Let's like we we should have a lot more vehicles in space now. It's something's wrong. Well, there's insane rich uh, men trying to make that happen for you, Mark. <laughs> but the thing is, is that if those insane rich men hadn't got all that accumulated all that wealth in the first place, then that might have just been spread out with that. Uh, I'm not going to get into this, but yeah. <laughs> well, unfortunately, despite what Kirk predicted, 
we didn't learn to stop spending money on death and spend it on life instead. And somehow it's more profitable to keep killing each other than going into space. Yeah. There's your depressing answer. I mean, yeah, probably a lot to blame. Uh, it's uh, the year 2001 that actually did happen. <laughs> yes. I mean, 2001 was just a... It's not the cause of anything. It was a result. Yeah, I mean, it's it was... It was sort of a, a uh, what do you call it, inflection point? Yeah. Yes. How, point. Matt or Mark, who maybe you're more familiar, how are Kubrick's politics? I don't think he was that spoken about. We're throughout Kubrick. I can't he... tell if this film is, like, anti-capitalist or anti-socialist. Because <laughs> it does I'm, seem to um... be like everyone just works together. The individual is not that important. But is that I, a, does the film like that? Does it dislike that? Is the product placement and like how criticizing corporations running this sort of mission, or is it a is that meant to be a positive thing? It's kind of hard to tell. And maybe that's the beauty of Kubrick just being a filmmaker and not shoving his message down your throat that you could totally interpret this either way. I mean, I'm, today... I'm skimming an article, and it seems like he probably was an angry guy who had a bunch of views on things that didn't necessarily fit into a mold like one of those mm. uh sort of a south park guy i guess uh social yeah. darwinist i see that thrown about uh liberal humanist distrusted almost all authority there's just a lot of just angry guy stuff i think his politics should just use an angry dude who had a lot of power <laughs> you know I, I, I was mean? thinking one thing this year uh i've heard explained is sort of like one of the reasons Oppenheimer was such a success is because a lot of people went into that movie being like, what is Christopher Nolan trying to say with this movie? What are Christopher Nolan's views? Why did he choose this subject? Because I guess like Kubrick, he keeps himself a little bit enigmatic as, as far as his actual views go. So people mm. are like, what, what, what does this mean? And I, I guess you're getting that with this, this movie too. You know, uh, he keeps himself um, opaque enough that you, don't really know but that allows you to you know put your own thoughts into it a little more deeply i guess um i i think a lot about i guess i'm just so used to modern films always being like here is our message this is the message of this film mm. yeah yeah I, I think a lot about the shining and how interesting it is that sort of stephen king sort of hates it because Stephen King thinks that cocaine is evil and Stanley Kubrick thinks that people who do cocaine are evil. Mm. I guess what is my take of that? <laughs> or maybe it was just alcohol with that. But, you know, it's that's a very interesting thing to me is that that, that, that film feels like it's the, the politics of that film are that sometimes your dad is a fuck up and, I mean, and <laughs> insane. I mean, obviously, you know, there are very political films in the past. You can go watch you know we just watched salt of the earth i mean that's yeah as political as possible but the general vibe of uh, stars and i would say directors too up through probably late 90s is uh before social media stars being the author or the movie star would basically keep their politics to themselves i mean we yeah. didn't really know we didn't really know about james woods until social media got rolling yeah. <laughs> I mean, Tom Which, Cruise like, lived a lucky, charmed, quiet life in a way. And there is, of course, like, there's value in the idea that, hey, just because these guys are act good doesn't mean their opinions are worth listening to. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't necessarily dislike the idea that of that version of celebrity compared to today where you know if you're famous then suddenly people listen to you and you get to rant about how you know I mean you could love the who, or... but you probably don't want no. Keith Moon in your kitchen he'll smash yeah, the poster it, well most actors don't write and I think that's a, that was sort of a thing where we went through that short phase where there was a strike and actors had to talk about themselves and not about the projects <laughs> they were working on it was kind of nice because I'm like I I went to DragonCon and saw actors talk about their method which I don't feel like I usually get but oh, that's yeah. what they do they're there to act right it's like uh, writers mm. write and I don't think writers usually are famous enough to get to talk to anybody about anything like, like you did a lot actors. of that in real time did you did you come away with anything didn't you have you had several podcasts during the strike talking to actors in that mode did, <laughs> I, I I enjoyed that so much like when we we did the Orville panel in Las Vegas it was we couldn't talk about any of, we couldn't promote any of their work we couldn't talk about any of their struck work but we could talk about you know who met whom first who worked together with who first how did you guys make each other better what's your you know what's your process um you know things like that I found far more interesting than you know episode 47 when you guys went down to the planet uh, or what were you thinking as far a as wizard uh, did it <laughs> they were the lizards I don't no Hal is a republican <laughs> so and that's one of the things like you know with like the you know the I, don't, I hate to call it mixed messaging but you know you look at star trek the original series which had you know so much you know messages in there about you know diversity and and representation and and that kind of thing um but then on the other hand it was sort of like this you know uh uh, you know, grand or idealized version of the Marshall Plan, you know, where, you know, capitalism, free trade, free, uh, you know, free, you know, freedom, uh, you know, will is sort of the answer to all your problems. Um, and if, you know, if we provide that, then you'll be able to, you know, develop to your fullest and uh, and 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 be your best selves. So it was it sort of it had sort of equal, you know, what what in you know twenty twenty three would be considered kind of equally conservative and you know more liberal views, kind of kind of the best of both, I would say. And uh, I think if you want to appeal to the most amount of people possible, you'll kind of maybe make it a little murky which side you're on so that mm. you don't offend you know 49 to 51 percent of the population i mean i'm sure this yeah i'm sure people were very easily offended in the 60s but it feels like people are more easily offended now than, than ever it's not that people are more easily offended it's just that you never heard about it before yeah. Whereas now people, everyone gets that big old soapbox on the internet. So, and, and I yeah. say that all the time. I mean, picture somebody who's, you know, 1960, um, you know, a dad, a 40 year old dad, you know, born in 1925, you know, so he's 40, 41, and, you know, when Star Trek's coming on the air and uh, World War II vet, maybe. And he sees somebody who's Japanese, a black woman, you know, uh, a Russian during the cold war like like these guys would have been all over social media talking about how awful that is i would mm -hmm. think like maybe i'm projecting a little bit but they just didn't have you the can, platform They've got you the can see it now. you can see it if you find yeah. old fanzines and stuff like that it's well, just that you know most, movie most is, people saw that 
this I'll, movie I'll go is ahead white men you. in space, right? The the other are yeah. the the couple Russians we see on the spaceship. <laughs> yeah, everyone else looks like they're out of a wow. Yeah, everyone else looks like they're out of a 1965 you know Sears catalog. Yeah. Oh, on the space station. Yeah. They, yeah. So let me tell you my version of that. Um, I'm a little weirded out by how everybody's super into the military in uh, Star Trek Picard. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's the whole it. thing. Oh, that was the point. Okay. Most of it. No, that was that was just my version of I am in my 40s, and this makes me a little bit uncomfortable because it is kind of contrary to my beliefs. My version of that is um, a different angle, but Spider Man, who I remember as sort of the doesn't play by the rules, problem with authority, working class superhero, is now a child shoulder with Cedra. Child soldier with chevrons on his uniform. Right. Yeah, I I heard the first PlayStation game was kind of he works with the cops all the time, and it's kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it worked because he he is you yeah. know he always has been like he goes around catching criminals or whatever. Yeah, he literally has a cop he has a cop on his radio that he chats to. Yeah, the video games usually are not super great at being realistic slices of life. Like the, let me t- let me tell you about everything that you already know about this civil this city. <laughs> you, you probably not. don't want to know the politics of some of your favorite video game designers. Oh, I yeah. Guy who created Earthworm Jim, massive homophobe. Yeah. Um, let's I guess put the film or filth label onto two thousand one, A Space Odyssey. Two thousand one, A Space Odyssey is a film that is painfully lacking in filth. Yeah, it's too much of a film. Yeah, <laughs> it's spotless film. <laughs> it's, this is like the if you raise your children like this, they won't have an immune system of film. <laughs> I, I, every time it never fails. The the Victorian room at the end makes me uncomfortable every second that I'm looking at it. I'm sure that's the part of the to. point. But, so so my yeah, okay. note was my note was like, wow, antique furniture in a uh, modern room. What kind of nouveau riche nonsense is this? <laughs> my my note is that um every couple months when i'm when we're doing a hospital visit um we stop at this french restaurant which looks kind of like the this victorian room <laughs> so i'm always sitting there listening to clank and silverware thinking about that I, it, unfortunately the floors are not glowing in the restaurant but yeah that was that's a mistake on their part so um i've become well, weirdly comfortable with the victorian room <laughs> I well, just you, went there this past Monday. I, I ate duck. Oh, nice. I mean, it's objectively more. It's you'd be more likely to see a room like that in modern society than anything else in the film. Everything else is, you know, fantastic mid-century modern stuff that people don't make anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably because it costs too much. What if? Um, I don't think it would really affect the quality of this film, but it would affect the aesthetic. What if we had a little bit more old space? You know, the Discovery's been in space 18 months. It looks a little gritty on the outside. 2010 definitely does that. Um, you I mean, know, the, the Pan Ams could look a little more like road-worn. Would that make things uh, better, worse? Um, Wouldn't matter? I, I mean, don't know. It's not necessary. I mean, I, I think this film looks great. And it's meant to be yeah. like... These are like the premier missions of nasa on like the most important mission right so it's gonna look clean and new and fresh i think the and outside i work, think not that... after 18 months in space <laughs> there's nothing well, in like space the... mate why would it be dirty yeah that's the thing is i think that 
I can see like most of these things, I could see exactly what Kubrick was trying to do is that nothing's in space. So everything's spotless because you know, everything's slow because you're in space. Everything's spotless because you're in space. I mean, that's not really what would happen because there's just rocks everywhere and asteroids and dust and shit. We haven't really talked about this film's quality much because like, what's the point in talking about the quality of 2001 a space odyssey? It's clearly phenomenal. Yeah. But I was watching it last night thinking like there is genuinely not a single shot in this film where if you remade it, you could make it look better. That yeah. Like I said, it wouldn't really it's not even, just it's being not even like it's not even like the effects they look good for their time. I don't think a CGI version of this effect would look any more real. The the, I mean, the effects look amazing. And and in fact, even you know, my, my daughter is twenty one, she was looking at it, she goes how did they, it was, it was a shot with, I think the shuttle going across the moonscape and, and landing. And you could tell that they were like, you know, I, I think it was probably a shot that was composited out of several different layers of, you know, mm. moonscape and, and, you know, shuttle model filmed, you know, against a blue screen or just a dark screen. And it just was, it, it looked with an amazing, it looked amazing. Um, and that was John Dykstra in 1968. And it was, uh, you know, I guess apparently they were using like real time photos coming back from unmanned probes on the moon to really get the look of the moonscape just right. And that was, well, yeah, of course, like that's right the story because last Kubrick moment. was making those videos in the next room over. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, My, I have friends who I, I have one friend specifically i don't know if he still believe, he definitely actually believed that the moon landing was fake my favorite you know, version of it is the moon landing is real but the footage is faked yeah i love that one <laughs> I, yeah. I heard yeah, the alien autopsy version although i did i did hear a very um good um a very good argument that kubrick could not have possibly faked the moon landing if kubrick had faked the moon landing it, it would be have 1080p looked like, yeah, it, would, yeah. it wouldn't look like oh. it, it, it's directed for television it's you know it's, yeah it's, Kubrick couldn't bring himself to make something that looks that shot yet I think exactly if Kubrick <laughs> done it, it, would, it would look a whole lot better it would look like this movie <laughs> so we have I believe two more Kubricks on the list is uh, that right I'll trust you, you we definitely have strange look. love right we have yes. strange love and uh the shining are both on the list which just yes, a rare horror, right. horror film no barry lynn a rare, well, a rare horror film on the good list yeah you guys, <laughs> exactly. you guys got you guys got ai on the on the other list or we, that's i don't not think on it's either that list. hated okay. yeah. it's not I that hated i was about three hated. hours in i was no. like just end <laughs> like and then full metal jacket and show up <laughs> see i'm looking at full metal jacket and clockwork orange both are also at an 8.3 but not on the list which is kind of interesting a it's like decimal strange point, love is 8.4 Anything eight oh passive glory must be on the list because it's eight point four, unless it. Changed. Oh yeah, yeah, that's another one that that is on the list. I've never actually seen that, so that'll be fun. I've seen it like when I was in high school, so I you know I guess I'll revisit it. Um, I right. do have you a know, one. I haven't seen anything that's not a sci-fi or a fantasy. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no do... dinosaurs in passive glory. I don't think. I do have no. a one-star review. It's short and sweet. I, I went looking through several, and the the first one. That came up seems to be the one, which is uh, one out of ten. Strange. This movie is the strangest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. It has no real plot. It skips from one storyline to another so much it's confusing. 
It makes absolutely no sense in the normal use of that word. The worst part is the flying plasma part to snore the blue Danube. I wouldn't, although I fell asleep playing it, so I guess I can't really. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend this movie to my worst enemy. <laughs> These 30, are the best ones. 39 like, out of 92 found it helpful. <laughs> the best ones of these are that they, they kind of have points the entire time. It's, and then it's, it's like, just like they go way too hard. Like, oh, this yeah. is like a good six out of ten review. One out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting that like there are not many films like this where instead of having characters, the character is just the entire human race. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess the beginning could be Planet of the Apes. Do you do you think that this? Do you think it would be cool if there was some kind of crossover where we find out that the apes from two thousand one traveled forwards in time and became the Planet of the Apes? Apes isn't that the Burton well, one? I mean, their their <laughs> Maybe. first rule is ape shall never kill ape. So I, I don't yeah broke it immediately. They've already botched that one up. Um, interesting yeah. piece of trivia. Uh, Sci-Fi Five. I did a uh, one of my writing assignments was a film called Trog, which was Joan Crawford's last uh, last acting role. Uh, the mask, the prop mask that that Trog wore, uh, was recycled from this film. Huh. Trog was so, a uh, missing link type character living in the. What caves. was Trog's relation to uh, Joan Crawford's character? Uh, she was an anthropologist. And nice. uh, they found this. They found this guy living in a cage. Uh, not a cage. In a cave. Uh, some spelunkers found him down there. Um, and then one of them, I think, got attacked. The other one, like, wanted to shock. And then, like you do when something like that happens, you go to the nearest anthropologist to report what happened. Uh, and then she got involved in in the case. Nice. That sounds like great. a horror movie. She was very nice as long man. as. They said she yeah, was no, very nice they as long as she was it. drinking her Pepsi. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. I'm not necessarily going to read these reviews, but I just found a run of a, a three more one-star reviews, and I have to read the titles sure. after another. A Crushing Bore, Utter Tripe, Why This Film Was Meaningless Crap. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was describing this to a friend when I told him I was watching it. Um, yesterday and i sort of was like you know i the film is like the weather it's just it just is it's hard for me to even specifically state my opinion on it it's like i do love it but it's also like a weird but it's it's a weird film it's, it sits in a weird place right speaking of it's... friends i i have to read one line it said a friend oh, sure. tells me a friend tells me kubrick was trying to capture the boredom of space he succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> Man, great. People come in for this real hard. I love it. This is a film that if you were saying like, oh, I've got an evening. I want to watch a film. I would not recommend. I do but that. if you were like, oh, my local theater is playing 2001 A Space Odyssey. I run, don't walk. You have to go. Because it's yeah. not really like a, it's not popcorn entertainment, but it is fucking art. If you have a nice screen, a nice sound system, and you can just watch this film, it's worth doing. But I, I, it's not like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a fun Saturday night. I think it's good yeah. for a video wall at a party or something like that. Like, it's perfect that for too, that. That too, that too. Yeah, it's, but it's the last time I saw is... it, 
Sorry, go ahead. Frames a piece. No, every frame is a piece of art. I mean, it's probably the same thing you were going to say. It's you know that that video wall idea about it. Um, Real quick, I I saw this film in a movie theater. Um, It came out in '68. I was born in '67, so it couldn't have been first run. It had to be, you know, making its round back in the movies like movies did back then. Mm -hmm. Um, Probably when I was, I would probably guess I'd probably say I was five or six years old when I saw it, and just. Uh, it, it so it has always had kind of special meaning for me because I don't remember a lot of grown up movies that I got to see when I was that young of this magnitude, you know, of this kind of social stature that the, this film has. I was going to say the last time I saw this was a New Year's Eve screening where they showed the film, and then when it was time for New Year's, they stopped the film and everyone counted down and yelled happy new year's and then they resumed the film and it just it was just somewhere in the middle of it it wasn't it wasn't like they planned it out super well but it was that was uh, a good way to watch it i often yeah, see those tweets where it's like if you start the film at 10 what then the character will say this line at new year sort of thing what yeah, would be the moment in this film for that uh the part where hal kills a guy <laughs> <laughs> happy new <laughs> year yeah happy new year <laughs> The baby new old man new year died and baby new year I think is coming. You, you, you want the title card jupiter and the new year uh, jupiter and beyond the infinite comes up yeah. at midnight or, or the baby the space baby shows up at midnight so it's like baby new year <laughs> literal baby new year i guess we should wrap this guy up unless someone had a, a another point they wanted to spit out i have some but i probably said in the last podcast um, so go back and listen to that i have Zero no gravity. thoughts that someone hasn't already shared I, I, Zero I gravity that's space and, and did anybody pick up any significance out of the uh the song daisy bell that uh that, that was oh, i think we looked first... this up last time matt wasn't it the first song a computer ever sung yeah yes i was gonna say that yes, zero me. gravity toilet was uh kubrick said that is the only intentional joke in the film and so it is <laughs> yes 1892 uh vaude- vaudeville song um so yeah i looked it Oopie. up and you guys chatted about it already it was i was first bicycles were the height of technology in 1892 probably so and well, the bicycle was the space shuttle engine. of its day i guess they did have steam engines <laughs> tall it's, ships steam you know ships. computer a spaceship built for two is probably just as bad an idea as a bicycle built for two somebody's probably. gonna Gemini? fall off you don't like gemini yeah we often talk about in the twilight zone like you need one more person on this crew because now you've just got one dickhead who's going to ruin the other guy's life. <laughs> yeah, three three man crew keeps everyone keeps everybody oh. balanced. Yeah, keeps everybody accountable. I would say having a three. There was a good gag in a Transformers comic where Rodimus Prime was talking about he likes having his two underlings who can argue with each other because then he just gets to do what he was going to do anyway. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Two star screams. That's one that's way. Like, that's like Kirk exactly. having yeah, Spock and McCoy. One always telling him to do something emotional, the other one telling him to do something logical. So he just gets to do what he was going to do anyway. <laughs> what should have been is Kirk just sits in his chair while Spock and McCoy do it. You know, have it out in the uh, conference room. Yeah, <laughs> it's not there for it. Yeah, just kind of lets the dust settle and then does what he was going to do <laughs> anyway. Um, any any references? Any evidence of of any application of our sir? Arthur C. Clarke's three laws in this in this film at all. No, what the, are three, the three laws are. Um... We we we. I think Asimov's are the ones yeah, that we Asimov usually think about. Laws. So, 
Do, you don't yeah. happen to have Clarks in front of you, do you? Because I'm not. Well, I, I, I kind of know them. So the one that's most famous is the any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Okay, that's yeah, we know that the one. whole monolith that, thing. Right? That could be getting swept away, <laughs> you know, to the to the nether to, oh. to infinity and beyond. Oh, this is great. And I think that I, I have the other two. Another, the other two are great. One of one, my I, I love them both. Um, I'll save my favorite for last. The other one is if any older distinguished scientist tells you something is possible they're almost certainly correct however if that same distinguished elder scientist tells you something is impossible they are almost certainly incorrect and then the one that i love the only way to test the limits of the possible is to occasionally tiptoe into the impossible and i like that one yeah that's great Okay, yeah, the other two definitely don't get quoted as much. So, but I think I think the film does kind of show all three because it is. I mean, obviously, the first one is this whole film, right? Yeah, but then it gets into like the film is so grounded in most of its sci-fi that yes. you're then you're ready when it takes you on the ride into the absolute madness at the end. I, I think the magic one is probably maybe abused by writers too much because yeah sometimes writers don't feel like because it looks like magic they don't have to explain to you the audience how it works and it's then just it doesn't have advanced to technology yeah. yeah i don't i don't <laughs> mind like not being told on a technical level how something works i like knowing what isn't isn't possible in a sci-fi or fantasy world before i get there like i don't like for example yeah. at the end of the film star trek into darkness they could just cure death yeah <laughs> Well, the, yeah, that it's doesn't even bother me as much as that in Star Trek Into Darkness, someone must be inside the nuclear reactor. Oh, that yeah, is, it's just that designed is, that way. It must be. Yeah, it's just... No, that's not <laughs> also, how, that's not how uh, time works. In Star Trek Into Darkness, they, uh, they remove the need for spaceships. Yeah. Anyway, that's not... We also, had a whole sci-fi no, sanctuary where we spent yeah. every single episode bringing up also, Star Trek Into Darkness, even though it wasn't the film we were talking about. <laughs> they went so far in trying to cast actors who looked like their counterparts, and then for Khan, it's just, eh, Benedict Cumberbatch. The so that nobody knows that. that he's Khan. Anyway. Even yeah, though was, everyone predicted he was Khan. <laughs> yeah. is To the point where J.J. Abrams had to come out and say, he's not Khan, and lie to people. Anyway. <laughs> the the hey, history has own- decided that that movie's bad. We don't have to do any more to it. Yeah. The manager of the company, as that was in the screening of Star Trek in the Darkness, she was there for the, the Cumberbatch. <laughs> oh, well, in that case, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. There were a lot of Cumberbitches. I know that. No. I mean, I'm not saying they call themselves that. That's what they call themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like it if the part of it is that they're always over encumbered. Okay. <laughs> I'm still thinking about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's It's more video game talk. Just ignore it. I mean, I guess, people okay. can be over-encumbered in real life, Mark. <laughs> people can be over It just happens way more in video games, I think. Yeah, because you never try and carry six guns, four swords, and two months' worth of provisions in real life. Maybe If I can. had them, I would try to carry I them. Spent, I spent my first six months in Japan over-encumbered, so I was carrying my whole life in a big-ass backpack. But mm. that wonder, didn't stop me going I, around buying every piece of Nintendo merch I saw. I wonder if he says things like... I see you're unencumbered by male companionship. How would you like to get? Would you like to see cumbered. my batch? How would you like to get cumbered? 
Uh, would you like to see my sea cucumber? All right. Would you like to <laughs> bend, bend <on> my dick? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> I guess I guess that means we're finished with 2001. <laughs> we were kind of finished with 2001 before we started because we all we all went into this podcast with just the well. What do you fucking say? <laughs> so we've talked about everything but this film. Yeah, it's really good. If you haven't watched it, what are you doing? Why are you listening to us? Yeah, not your Take fucking life. Out. <laughs> I hope you're watching it a second time while you're listening. Yeah, it's it's definitely a movie that like if you've given it a watch and it uh, and you've written it off, I would say give it another watch. It's a, it's one of those films that you should go back to every five years to see how much you've aged. <laughs> yeah how close you are to the victorian room like it's just it's waiting there looming on the horizon like, but that I was wanna um, travel, yeah. i want to get re- reincarnated as a baby like star trek the motion picture i was like oh i'm old enough now that i really like this yeah. uh well mike what's going on with with your orvilling if that um you know not not really a whole lot right now the actors and writers strike is over so we're you know we're hoping that they might do a new season um jessica and i went to uh seth mcfarland's christmas party uh holiday Whoa. party last saturday night um so we had a chance to chat with seth and tom costantino andrew Bor- and andre bormanis um scott grimes and uh so basically what they're being told um what they told me is they're they're kind of being told to keep their calendars open uh i think the industry is kind of picking up the pieces right now because there's higher residuals for writers there's more writers going to be in the writer's room uh actors are going to get paid more the daily minimum has gone up they're going to get higher residuals so it's sort of changed the whole metric on what you know what is a viable show and what isn't a viable show to produce so until the studios make some decisions um on what to do going forward i think i think there is a little bit of limbo going on but um i mean i'm hopeful that there'll be more uh you know we're going to continue to to get some people on the show just to kind of chat about what's uh what's going on we had a jay lee interview that i thought was a lot of fun uh recently and we're working on uh getting some some other folks coming up uh coming up here pretty soon to try to drop drop something at least uh at least every month or so to uh just kind of keep that keep the keep the dream alive of morville and uh that's that's where we're sitting right now uh we may look at uh doing some other shows that's a decision that uh is forthcoming from the roddenberry podcast network but we we may be looking at some other sci-fi shows that have strong star trek ties to them all righty and uh yeah folks haven't watched the orville yet do that and listen to to mike and jessica get into it because it's a good time (laughs) yep uh, I finished yeah. it in like three weeks. I think it's it's bingeable. Wow. Oh, okay. I I didn't even do that. Well, because I followed along week by oh. week. I guess that's why. <laughs> I was dog sitting a lot, so it's just you know you're paid to hang out with dogs and watch TV, which is good. As for us, for films and filth, you can support us on Patreon at Podcastio Podcastius. Help us keep the lights on and the server cost. We do this, of course. Time enough podcast about the Twilight Zone, Space 199, Podcast 199 about Space 1999. Luke loves Pokemon where he loves Pokemon, Hyrule Field Report where he loves Zelda, and the Game Game Show where game gamers ask questions that 
make it sound like they don't love each other. <laughs> that's that's accurate, right? Yeah. Well, so th- there's there's a bunch of complex interweaving relationships. It seems like. Okay. <laughs> and uh, anyway, now we're gonna go. At least Luke and I are gonna go talk to a monkey. As a few years ago, we did get to talk to Daniel Richter, who played Moonwatcher, not not Bone Weaver or whatever. But uh, <laughs> and uh, we weirdly we talked to him about the Beatles because he was also John and Yoko's right hand man for three years. But he was also Moonwatcher in two thousand one, and we did get a segment with him. So here it is. We would be completely remiss not to ask a little bit about playing uh, Moonwatcher in two thousand one. Uh, from reading your book, it sounds like you sort of ended up in that role by a bit of a serendipity. Yeah, I I wasn't looking for uh, a job in pictures at that point. I was doing experimental performances, you know, sort of avant-garde art stuff, which is where was my so was my want at the time. And I was also publishing uh, beat poetry and, and doing poetry readings at events. And um, uh, through mutual friends of Stanley and Arthur Clark, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur Clark, through a mutual friend uh, and a, a producer friend of mine said, I was just talking to this guy, who, uh, Mike Wilson, who works with um, Arthur Clark, and he said, and he and Stanley were saying the opening of 2001 has a scene where it's all just uh, early man, some manics, and they've been trying to do it for two years and everything they've tried hasn't worked, and then they suddenly, they thought, well, we've never talked to a mime, how do you find a mime? So, my friend said to uh, this guy, well, I know the best mime in town. It's Dan Richter, you know. So I got asked to come out and have Stanley pick my brain. So I went out and I thought that was really cool. I mean, I knew Stanley's work, you know, is amazing, you know, great genius. And I thought, okay, I've got And I, so I didn't go out looking for a job. I just went out to let him pick my brain and get a chance to meet this great guy. Uh, and we we got going. He showed me, explained to me what his problem was and whatnot. And I said to him, "Well, your problem is you have to create a willing suspension of dis." You know, I was really cocky. I was in my twenties, you know. So you have to you willing suspension of disbelief. I see it as an acting problem, not a moving problem. You got to you got to get motivated uh, creatures up there that that the audience react to immediately. And um, and I could do that. I could show you how to do that. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you you uh, the audience will believe what they see if it's motivated and grabs them so that the way you not see the costume is by really good performing, really good performing, which is comes from motivated acting. Because uh, you got to grab them, grab them by the throat or the balls or whatever you want to say right away. And uh, so I showed him, you know, I, I he said, well, that you talk good, you know, um, but I don't, you know, I don't know. You don't have much of a resume or anything. And so I said, give me 20 minutes of stage, a, a leotard, black leotard and two towels and uh, I'll show you. And so he said, we can do that. And I, I went and I put a leotard on. I stuffed the towels inside to change the shape of my body a bit, build up my shoulders. And uh, and I I played a character. Uh, I had a character I like to play called Joe, who's sort of uh, paranoid, aggressive, not that bright. Uh, so I told Joe, uh, just be a monkey, you know, be an ape. 
And uh, Joe didn't like the idea, but, you know, he did it anyway. And I went out and let, I let Joe be an ape. And uh, Stanley loved it. And then I went back and then I then I played a very timid character I have that, whoo, that's very nervous. And, um, and I went out and played that character. And I explained to him, I was, and he loved that. And I said, it's like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know, sleepy, dark, you know, dopey. You have to have, if they're, if they're clear characters and they're, it's motivated acting, which, and the movement is an extension of that motive, those motivations, you'll get something that I believe will work. And he, he hired me on the spot. I wasn't looking for a job. And he, he gave me eight months to develop it, which took a long time. And uh, some of that involved. Oh, go ahead, Luke. I was gonna say I'm I'm a big fan of all kinds of like creature features and monsters in suits and animals and characters like that. Um, can you th can you think off the top of your head some examples which do do that well and imbue that character and some which don't? Well, I think I think these the Star Wars characters some of them work very well. Uh, they had the uh, um, you know. George Lucas had the advantage of using Stuart Freeborn, who did did 2001, you know, and um, uh, the but I think I got to tell you guys, we're the best. You know <laughs> what we you know, I, I, I you know, I'm an, I'm I'm a, a humble guy, but uh, we did it better than anybody. And um, and I don't think anybody's done it as well since. Because they can't afford to. Um, and because literally, I studied the movement of apes and chimpanzees and gibbons. I, you know, I had eight months to, to develop the, those movements, to cast those people, to train them. And I had, you, you, then you'll make a whole film in that amount of time, you know, and to produce 18 minutes. And then I, then it was, as a, then you got Stanley Kubrick as the director. He was a, perhaps the greatest uh, film director of the 20th century. Um, so, and then we took eight weeks, eight months to develop it, and about eight, eight to ten weeks to shoot it. To shoot those just those 18 minutes. Can you imagine eight to ten weeks? We would do as much as 40 or 50 takes, you know, to get everything exactly perfect. And it uh, and I I was also my training is my my teacher Paul Curtis at the American Mime Theater was a different form of mime. You just most mimes put white face on and do pantomime and do walk in place and you know handle imaginary objects and and look clownish. We uh, every all the mime we did where we did mime plays where it began with the acting process with real characters have the real feelings doing things and then extended those feelings into into movement and it made it made the movement believable uh, rather than something you looked at it was something you experienced you went with and uh, so I was Stanley was lucky that I was around and I was super lucky that we got to meet and he got to use me. So I was able to use my training, which just fit that fit that thing perfectly. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, I mean, they wanted me to work on um, Greystoke, a uh, couple things, it, but it just wasn't wasn't the same, you know. Yeah, um, I guess the, the filming for that was the tail end of the 2001 filming, if I if I remember correctly. 
Yeah, uh, they had already done all the, Stanley had already done the live action. Uh, so Keir and Gary and those people had already been shot and had left. Um, so he was doing the special effects and the, the special effects took an inordinate long time because there were no, we, we had no computers, no CGI. Everything was done in the camera. Uh, and it, you know, film would, you would expose film and then they would, it would be wound back and then put away and then that same film would be brought. It was like a shot of a, of a spaceship against a black velvet background with an incredible amount of light shot at, at very, very uh, narrow apertures to get incredible detail. And then it would be, then the, the, the model of the, of the, um, of, uh, the space guy would be then, it would be shot with him in front of black. The same film would be exposed. So he would be now, he would now be on the film. Uh, you know, it was all done in the camera. It was, uh, incredibly meticulous and took, we were way over budget, way over budget. The guys at, the guys at MGM who were the, the studio that was behind it at the time were having cat fits. Well, um, coming into that contact with Stanley Kubrick, we're looking at a very enigmatic film, like deep science concepts. You could think about like hermeticism and things when you're watching this. Um, did he ever say anything to you, just um, like his own insight into what he was making? Because I mean, part of the charm is that it's it's whatever it is to the watcher. But no, we would talk. I mean, Stanley and I talked. I saw, I was with Stanley every day for yeah. You know, 15 months and uh because i also worked after we after we wrapped the dawn of man sequence i worked on the stargate sequence uh with con Pedersen and doug trumbull and uh also stanley and i were trying to create an alien and uh we did a lot of you know he would make me up and shoot me in funny ways and things like that so we were doing that right up until the end we never we never got anything he was that he was happy enough to put in the picture, but he was notorious about not telling people what it was about. We focused on just the actions that were being done. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Um, we, there's a scene where we first see the uh, monolith and we've been asleep and we come out, we run around and, you know, and then go up and then I go up to the monolith and I reach up and touch it with my hand. And so we were doing this, we do the shot and everything. And Stanley said, no, I want you like this. And I said, well, that sort of feels awkward. He said, yeah, but I'd like it. Then. I said, why? And he said, because I've already shot, and I didn't know this because I hadn't seen the scene, the shot on the moon where um, Haywood Floyd goes up and touches it. He wanted to match the hands. But he didn't, he hadn't told, he didn't tell me that before. Once he told me that, it was easy to do. <laughs> He didn't like to, he didn't, the thing about Stanley's pictures is he didn't want to tell people what was there about because that would, then they would think that when they were watching it rather than having the pure experience and of, he would let the film, want the film to speak for itself. And I get that because um, I've never. I think Luke has read the the novel. I have, you know, purposely avoided novel because I just love the enigmatic nature of something like this. 
I mean, I knew what was, I knew, let's put this, we, we, knew, we knew what we were doing and we know, we knew the, the continuity and the details of the story and what was going on. And so people are always amazed at things like, for instance, when I throw the bone in the air and then you see this satellite orbiting around the earth that matches, that's, that's a, a hydrogen bomb satellite. And nobody knows that. And it's the first weapon with the most modern weapon, you know, you know, but Stanley doesn't tell you that, you know. So there's all this going on that people don't know, you know, but it adds to the mystery of it. And it also forces the audience to experience it more completely, to pulls them in as they try to understand and get around it. Uh, Luke, do you want to throw any questions about 2001 out? Um, so you mentioned how, like, what Stanley Kubrick wouldn't say. Uh, what what was the direction that he did give you for the Dawn of Man scenes? What what did he actually ask for? He gave, Stanley gives very little direction to actors. Um, in fact, Malcolm McDowell, you know, who was in um, uh, Clockwork uh, Orange, you know, he was saying to me one day, "Oh, I hated working with Stanley because he never told me what to do." You know, and Stanley. And Stanley had the attitude, well, I'm paying you, you're the actor, show me something. You know what the script is. Because much of the, the reason Stanley did so many takes is not because he was trying to get something right and it wasn't happening, so he had to keep trying and keep trying until he got it right. It was because he would shoot something. He'd take the first take and say, well, that was that's sort of interesting what happened over here. Okay, in this take, one of why don't you do that a little more? Then we look at it and say, well, you know, that was pretty good. I think that worked, but might have been too much with your right hand. Why don't we do it? Because what he was discovering things as it went along, and he was hoping the actors would bring to it something that he hadn't thought of. And if you over-direct an actor and tell him exactly what to do, if you, yes, you can get it exactly the way you want it, but you're shutting the door on, on the serendipitous things that may happen. And Stanley was always building on the, the great, his greatest moments were accidents that he recognized and took. For instance, throwing the bone in the air was not in the script. What happened was, is that when I first, first doing those first takes where I picked the bone up and start playing with it, a little bone flipped up in the rib bone flipped up in the air because I hit it just on the edge. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, because Stanley and I were talking to each other because I had a mask on and we had no sound running. So I'm sorry, Stanley. He said, no, no, I like it. Do it again. So like that. So we did, we did a, a, over the next few weeks, he kept wanting to extend that. So if you look at the actual scene now, it's my God, it's like crashing of skulls and throwing them in the air and the tapir falling to the ground. He built that incredible moment from a little accident that had happened, and then by by cultivating it and developing it, exploring it. And you know, he once said that he in a film he he needs he needs five or six great moments. That's what he needs. Something that goes beyond you know those special things, and that uh, it's it's not. To him, it's not taking the script and just making it as best you can. It's taking the script and using that as a starting point for things you will discover, and hopefully you'll discover enough really special moments that you can enhance and develop 
So the, the film will be wondrous.